Welcome to the New Books Network. So we are discussing the third in our series of sex, sex work and sexualities. And uh, today I have Stuart Green, who's going to talk to us about his amazing book, Criminalizing Sex, A Unified Liberal Theory. Stuart, this is an amazing book. I've been dipping in and out of it all weekend. You've literally kept me company this weekend. Tell me, why, why the book? What made you write the book? Well, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. It's uh, nice words and I appreciate it. Um, well, I'm a criminal law scholar and I spend a lot of my waking hours thinking about um, you know, the underlying moral content of the criminal law. Why do we criminalize certain behavior and not criminalize other behavior and how should we punish it and all of that sort of thing. And um, in particular, I'm interested in, in the kinds of uh, behavior that we criminalize. Why do we criminalize theft? Or why do we criminalize uh, homicide? Or why do we criminalize certain kinds of sexual behavior? And so that's kind of my, my career long project. And I had written about uh, theft law before and I'd written about white collar crime. And I was sort of fishing around what was I gonna work on next? And I never had really thought that much uh, about the sexual offenses uh, uh, specifically. And just by chance, I um, uh, attended a couple of academic conferences over the course of a year. Um, and uh, one was on the law of rape and sexual assault, uh, non-consensual kinds of behavior. And the other conference that I happened to attend was on sort of vice crimes and um, prostitution and incest and uh, other kinds of non-sexual behavior as well, drug use and so forth. And I, in the course of just a few months, I went to these two different conferences and they were both very good and smart people talking about interesting problems. But I came away kind of scratching my head and wondering, it seemed like there was almost no connection between the two conferences, even though both involved a lot of talk about sex, the way that we talked about them in the two conferences was very different. In one case, um, in the case of the conference on rape and sexual assault, the, uh, the, the, the driving force was, you know, how can we reorder our law to prevent kinds of sexual uh, abuse that occur. In the other case, it was much more, how can we decriminalize or legalize certain kinds of behaviors that are currently criminalized to give people more freedom to pursue their sexual lives. And uh, it seemed to me that those were connected and related and reciprocally in relation to each other. And I wanted to explore those that, that, that connection, even though um, most scholars had uh, really viewed those as separate kinds of problems. Cool. Um, I, like I said, I've spent the, um, the weekend sort of going through the book and it's quite interesting. And I was really interested about the, the sort of the, the struggle that, that was sort of apparent around the definition of sex. And I wondered what your definition of sex was. Mm. Right. Well, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, there are uh, sort of two reasons why lawyers, uh, criminal lawyers in particular, might be concerned about that issue. One is that um, if we're talking about the sexual offenses, then we kind of want to know what, what, what do we mean by sexual? 
um, in terms of a category. And the other thing is certain kinds of behavior um, might be problematic if they are sexual, but not be problematic if they're not sexual. So certain kinds of, uh, uh, of touching, you know, for example, just to think about a, a, a doctor who's doing a physical exam or a police officer who's doing a, a body cavity search, uh, the same contact might be completely lawful and appropriate if it's non-sexual and permissible and, and consensual. But if it involves a sexual motive, then we might regard it quite differently. So it seemed important to try to say, well, how do we know whether something is sexual or not? And um, there's a literature on this, not surprisingly. Uh, and uh, in the end, I came out to the conclusion that something is sexual if it feels sexual, if we regard it phenomenologically, to use the fancy term, as sexual. In other words, if it, if it um, uh, causes one to have feelings that one recognizes as, as sexual and sometimes have certain physiological responses as well that make something sexual. So it's, it's a subjective kind of determination. What might be sexual for one person might not be sexual for another. One of the kind of fun things, if I can call it that, that I discovered in writing this book and doing the research for this book is that, you know, people have sexual responses and sexual thoughts and sexual uh, attitude towards all kinds of behavior that might not and probably don't uh, seem very sexual to others. So people get, um, you know, sexually connected to their running shoes or their, you know, whatever it is, various objects and various kinds of scenarios and things that are regarded as sexual, even though most people might regard that as ridiculous or surprising or, um, or, or worse. So it seemed important to try to be able to say, you know, well, what, what is sexual? And what is not, and um, so I can't. I, I, in the end, I concluded that something is sexual if it elicits a sexual response, if it elect, if it elicits a response that a person would recognize as sexual. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where I started with that. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I liked what you wrote about voyeurism, um, how somebody somebody could be observed in a sexual way and not know that they're being observed in a sexual way. But you know, that could be damaging, even though they're not aware of their victimization, you know, because it's quite an interesting um, sort of uh, definition of, sex, uh, of, of what sex is in that case. Yeah, I mean, I think voyeurism raises two issues. One is that there's some voyeurism that isn't necessarily sexual. I mean, if I'm sitting in my I don't know, in my house, I'm doing yoga or I'm playing the piano or I'm cooking. Uh, those are, I would, for me, those are all non-sexual activities. Um, but if I discover that somebody is watching me from a distance uh, while I'm doing those sort of private activities, then that feels intrusive. But if in addition to that, I'm engaging in conduct that's sexual, uh, whether with my wife or by myself or what have you, then that, that has a different kind of uh, effect uh, yeah. or a different kind of intrusive quality. Um, but the thing about the thing, the peculiar thing about voyeurism is that um, most voyeurism probably goes undiscovered. So I don't, I don't know that somebody's doing that. I mean, that's the, the voyeur wants to be uh, undiscovered. 
And um, it, it may be, in fact, a long time, if ever, that I discover that I've been observed. There was a, a case that was written about in the New Yorker magazine a couple of years ago um, involving a uh, man who owned a motel somewhere in the Midwest. And he had installed some kind of um, mechanism for him. I think he had, I don't remember exactly. I think he got into the heating ducts or something like that in this hotel, in this motel. And he was able to observe people for years. He did this for years. People were having private, uh, you know, sexual behavior or just being undressed. And he was observing them and nobody discovered it. Uh, nobody knew about it for years and years. And then finally, uh, I don't remember exactly how it was discovered. Maybe somebody observed that the, um, uh, there, there were unusual configuration in the, in the room. It was discovered and this, uh, he had kept a record. He had kept a diary of all of his observations and they discovered that. Uh, I think he was dead by the time this was discovered, but um, you know, there were presumably hundreds of people who were observed over the course of a long period of time never knew about it. And in a certain sense, it was harmless behavior. Uh, it didn't harm them until, if, and if unless and until they actually knew that they were being observed. Nevertheless, they were clearly wrong. Yeah. And- um, But it's a, it's a lack of consent, isn't it? You know, it's, um, I, I find the idea of the gaze and the power of the gaze really quite interesting. In my own work um, around webcamming, you can't stop people watching but what you can do is not engage with the people who are watching. So you get a kind of um, a selective interaction, which kind of brought me on to the next point, really, which is, um, can you explain how, like for the, for the, um, the listener, how your book explores uh, sexual autonomy and consent? Because this was the theme that was running throughout the book. Right, sure. So, right, the whole book turns on the idea of basically two different kinds of sexual autonomy. Uh, and, and their relationship to, to consent. So we can talk about autonomy in a uh, positive sense, meaning that I have the freedom to engage in, you know, that behavior, sexual behavior that I want to behave in, as long as I don't harm anybody else. If I choose to do it, I should be free to do it in the privacy of my own home with whomever, whomever I want, you know, provided they're adults and they're consenting and so forth. So that's sort of positive autonomy. On the flip side of that is the notion of negative autonomy, the idea that um, I should be free of any sexual uh, contact that someone else might want to impose on me. So I should, if I say no, no means no, uh, no, no contact. And so um, the book in a way is an attempt to try to reconcile where the positive autonomy comes into conflict with the negative autonomy. One person's positive autonomy might butt up against another person's negative autonomy. And normally, and almost always, the negative autonomy should, should trump the positive autonomy. If I, uh, that's, that's the right resolution, but that's easier said than done. I mean, that's easier to explain, that's easier to state than it is sometimes to figure out in practice. And, and consent is the tool that sort of allows us to police that that interaction, because the consent, um, by giving consent, I'm saying that I am invoking my positive autonomy and I'm waiving whatever right I have with respect to the negative autonomy. Um, so consent turns out to be a crucial 
uh, fulcrum upon which all of these decisions are made. Um, so that's that, that's the basic gist of the of the of the theory. But the problem is in practice, and when we get to specifics and in the details, um, we discover that you know sometimes it's not always clear exactly what do we mean by consent and. Why exactly does consent play that role? And when, we, when we're talking about consent, are we talking about no means no, or yes means yes? Or you know, what, 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 how, how exactly should consent function in, uh, in practice? I really liked as well what you discussed around um, the idea of consent being given, but that that consent had not been recognized. So um, towards the end of the book, you discuss uh, sort of um, the abuse of power. So for example, uh, you know, a, a member of a church having a relationship with say, say someone within that church. So even though they've been, they've given their consent to the relationship, that, that that's not recognized um uh, you know another example i think was um somebody in prison that had, that had given consent to have a relationship with a guard within the prison so you know it's quite interesting the the, the topic that you bring out about whose consent is actually recognized as as valid so there are people making consenting decisions about who they have uh, sex with but their consent is not recognized Right. Well, so sometimes the consent is illusory or um, we have reason to believe that the consent isn't really valid or um, a truly um, um, the person isn't truly capable of giving consent, whether because of their own deficiencies, maybe they're mentally disabled or have some other kind of disability, or maybe they're intoxicated or maybe um, uh, you know, there's some other problem or because of the hierarchical relationship between them and their would-be partner. So you mentioned too, in the case of a, of a church, um, maybe you, know, you have a relationship between the, um, the minister and the parishioner, uh, or in the prison, you have a sexual contact between the prison guard and the inmate. And the prison guard or the priest may say, but it was consensual, you know, she consented. She said she wanted to do this. And I, I, I uh, describe a case, uh, an American case in which a, a prison guard had sex with an inmate and she apparently, you know, gave every indication that she, that she regarded it as consensual. Uh, so we might say, okay, fine. So no problem, let them have sex. But the problem, there is a problem. And the problem is that those kinds of relationships are so inherently uh, unequal and uh, across such a wide range of cases that we have reason to be very suspicious about how legitimate or genuine that consent really is. Uh, and, you know, there are other reasons for, for prison guards not to have sex with uh, uh, inmates as well. It's just not very good for discipline or um, uh, prison, um, uh, you know, uh, conduct. Um, so we might have a rule that says, okay, no prison guards can have sex with their inmates. Uh, it doesn't matter whether she wants to have it or he wants to have it. It doesn't matter whether there are indications of consent. It's just a per se categorical prohibition. Now, you know, similarly, we, we might do the same with respect to doctors and their patients, or we might do the same with respect to ministers and their uh, congregational members. Uh, and the, the question is, you know, what, what are the limits on that? I think most people would agree. I certainly think that prison guards should never be having sex with their inmates under any circumstances, uh, 
you know, when she gets out of prison or, uh, you know, is released or he no longer works at the prison, okay, we can talk about it. But um, otherwise it should be categorically prohibited. But there are a lot of hierarchical relationships that are more problematic than that. I think doctors, especially, uh, you know, psychotherapists should never be having sex with their patients under any circumstances. If they want to have a sexual relationship, then they can terminate the professional relationship. But, you know, they, they, they shouldn't be having both at the same time. Um, but in a way, the whole Me Too uh, movement of the last few years uh, is about these kinds of non-equal hierarchical relationships. The movie producer is, you know, having sex with the would-be uh, starlet. And um, he says it's consensual. And she says, well, no, I couldn't get the part in the movie unless I agreed to have sex with him or he manipulated me or what have you. Um, and so the question we wanna ask there is, well, should there be a categorical rule, just like the rule that applies to prison guards, should that apply to movie producers? Should it apply to politicians, to judges? Right now <clears throat> in New York state, our governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo is in a lot of hot water because he, you know, repeatedly, apparently, allegedly, uh, has propositioned members of his staff, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to have sexual relations with him. He didn't, he's not alleged to have touched them or grope, I think guess in one case he groped one of them. But mostly what he did was he raised, you know, he, he asked them questions about their sexual lives, he propositioned them, he tried to engage them in discussion about sex. And it's the kind of behavior that at a bar, uh, probably no one would uh, think twice about. Um, but if you're the governor of the state, a very powerful politician, and you have a young staff member who's 25, 30 years younger than you are, there's an, a hierarchical kind of fundamental uh, uh, difference in, in, their, in, their, um, in the power that those two parties have. And some people would say, we really should regard that categorically as uh, non-consensual kinds of behavior. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if you could explain to me, so what have the, the most significant changes in the law of sexual offenses been in the last generation? Has the law changed? Right. So, um, I mean, the, the book kind of begins with the description of this really striking divergence um, in two different areas here. And it goes back to those two conferences that I described at the beginning. Um, in, 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 in one case, we become much more punitive with respect to non-consensual behavior. So we've seen an expansion in the definition of rape and sexual assault. Um, it's, it's easier as it were to convict someone of rape or sexual assault and other kinds of non-consensual behaviors uh, than it was a generation or two ago. We have new offenses of sex trafficking and child grooming and revenge porn and so forth that we didn't really have a couple of generations ago. And the law is, is much, takes much more seriously those kinds of non-consensual behaviors. Uh, on the other hand, and more or less simultaneous with all of that, we've seen a liberalization in the case of uh, putatively consensual behavior. So um, most famously, most importantly, I guess, uh, the legalization, non-decriminalization of homosexual behavior, of same-sex behavior, um, is you know, a radical change in our culture and in, in our law. 
Um, same thing can be said with respect to adult pornography, which is now you know, completely legal um, in most Western jurisdictions. And um, same thing with, you know, with respect to adultery and fornication and those kinds of offenses that no one would ever think of criminalizing. And we've seen more discussion at least, if not liberalization yet, of adult incest and, and prostitution and, and sex work uh, of various sorts. Um, so those have become more, we've become much more liberal as a society and as a legal system with respect to those kinds of behaviors. And that's on its face, that's, kind of striking that we've seen this divergence between on the one hand, the, uh, the greater punitiveness and on the other hand, the greater li liberalization. Yeah, and, is it, and this, is, this really interested me, the point that you made, because it seems to be a kind of, uh, on one hand, it's much, more e it's much easier to prosecute certain types of sexual offenses. There's a, a more, a greater liberal approach to, to, to types of behavior that were sort of previously criminalized. But it's always really interesting when you talk about prostitution and sex work that actually has become increasingly more uh, abolitionist since 2000 and the Palermo Protocol. It's quite, it's quite interesting that on some ways there, there's been this liberalization but on, a, on other ways, like the laws becoming more um, uh, draconian. Right. Yeah. 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 Prostitution is a great, you know, example of that and really difficult, raises really difficult issues of public policy and law, right? Because yeah. on the one hand, you'd say, well, look, if two people uh, make a decision to exchange sex for money in the privacy of wherever they're doing it, they're not doing it out on the street, let's say, or they're not doing it within view of other people. And they're both adults and they're both making the decision. And we may not, we may or may not, you know, approve of that. Uh, but um, we, you know, from a liberal perspective, it seems like we ought to allow that and not, not prohibit it and, and not criminalize it. On the other hand, when we sort of pull back the camera and say, well, you know, wh what's the context for this? Why is, why is, say the woman typically selling sexual services, what, 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 what are her circumstances such that she finds herself doing this? Maybe, she, maybe this is a way to pay the bills. Maybe this is a, a free choice, but maybe not. Maybe there's a, an aspect of coercion to it. Maybe there is a, a kind of desperation that uh, occurs here. Uh, then we say, well, maybe, you know, the, what, what looks at first glance like it's a consensual transaction is actually more complicated than that is actually is coercive or exploitative and maybe we ought to regulate it. Um, so one way that a lot of Western jurisdictions have done that is especially in, 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 on the continent is to continue to criminalize the uh, purchase of sex but to decriminalize the sale of sex. Um, now that may, you know, that may be a good approach um, but it has effects, right? So if, if it's now gonna be a crime, if it's gonna to continue to be a crime to buy sex, then presumably the demand for sex is gonna go down and that's gonna have an effect on all the sex workers who are dependent on um, uh, purchasers. Now, basically you're putting them out of business if you continue to enforce the uh, laws on the, on the demand side. So it's, it's quite complicated. Um, and I don't think we really have figured out exactly, you know, what the right approach is. 
Yeah. Now, it's quite interesting in that because the, the, the conflation that happens between, say, sex work and, and trafficking allows for that increased uh, legislation around sex work. It's almost if we bring it under this umbrella of exploitation in some way, we, we can we can legislate it. And from my own personal experience, I've done um, I did a research with the, um, the London School of Hygiene where we interviewed a. Uh, um, I think 100, just over 100 street sex workers. And actually, despite the fact that the UK government is, is more interested now in prosecuting the, the, the users, on the ground, that doesn't happen. It's still the women that are bearing the brunt of the, uh, the, the, uh, the policing. And this kind of brings me into the, my next question, really, um, because you, you talk about the notion of liberal neutrality. What does that actually mean? Can you explain to us what you mean by liberal neutrality? Well, I think there is a, 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 a strand in liberalism that uh, the government really should have no business in making moral decisions or favoring some kinds of lifestyles over others, right? So um, uh, that, the, that the job of the government is more limited than that. The job of the government is to protect people from harms by others, um, if you're, you know, in, in one significant strand of liberalism, the, 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 the job of the government is to provide basic services for people, um, healthcare and, a, a, you know, a safety net um, and, and so forth. But that when it comes to people's decisions about how they want to lead their lives, you know, do they want to have three spouses and live in a com communal setting? Do they want to be married to their dog? Do they want to buy and sell sex? Do they want to have sex with their sister? You know, whatever those kinds of decisions are, whether they're sexual or other kinds of lifestyle choices, that the government should show some kind of neutrality. Um, so that's kind of the, the background there. The problem, of course, is that, again, once you get into the details, what seems like it's neutral may or may not be um, really neutral, that, that, some of that some of that behavior may be harmful. For example, the children who live in a home um, where certain kinds of practices are being engaged in that may be harmful to the children and we might want to pr protect the children in some ways. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the, the, the gist of neutrality. On the other hand, the, the, you know, the, the reality is that the criminal law makes uh, value judgments, if you will, all the time. I mean, we really do think that it's worse to have sex with a child than with an adult. That's a value judgment, that's a normative judgment. Um, we really do think that non-consensual penetrative sex is worse than non-consensual non-penetrative sex. That's a, that's, a, that's a normative judgment. So you could say that we're not really being neutral with respect to that. And, and I, I think that, you know, so we need to refine our notion of what we mean, mean by neutrality. But I think in, in the end, um, Neutrality means that the government, there, there's a presumption that the government shouldn't, should not intrude into people's private lives, whether their sexual lives or their faith beliefs or other practices that they engage in. What do you think um, are the most critical issues of the law of sexual offences we'll have to contend with in the years ahead? What are gonna, what's really going to be the, the biggest issues, do you think? Well, I think we're still very much in the middle of uh, trying to figure out how punitive 
uh, and how, how we should be with respect to the non-consensual behavior and how to formulate those offenses. So in the US right now, um, our American Law Institute, which is a prestigious um, law reform uh, body, they, they've, been, uh, they've been struggling now for, I think going on nine or 10 years with a, a, re, a revamping of the sexual offense provisions or the sexual assault provisions in the model penal code, which is the most influential model code in the US. Of course, we have 50 different jurisdictions Everything's complicated here. We don't have a single, you know, Sexual Offenses Act as you do in England and Wales. Um, but, um, you know, they're still trying to figure out how broadly to, dis uh, to describe, how broadly to frame rape and, and sexual assault. And uh, in Spain, they're, they're right in the middle of a big reform uh, following a notorious uh, gang rape case that occurred several years ago in um, Pamplona, I think. Um, well, we've seen reforms recently in Germany and Sweden, but I think that you know there, there there's likely to be continued pressure to broaden the reforms. Um, in in the U.S., we have tremendous debate about how to regulate. Um, sex on campus, on college campuses, and from administration to administration, the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration, we've seen this pretty dramatic shift in enforcement policy um, with respect to, you know, how to deal with um, alleged cases of, of sexual assault, um, sexual discrimination on college campuses. So that's, that, is, that, that continues. Um, and on the other hand, uh, we have you know, more and more debates about how to regulate sex work and um, uh, you know, whether to continue uh, not regulating pornography and so forth. So I think um, um, we're, we're still really struggling with that. And more generally, the Me Too movement um, which, you know, kind of reached a, a, a boiling point a few years ago um, is there remain really broad debates within society about how to, how to deal with these cases of shaming and blaming and, and so forth. I mean, we see it, we had a bit of a reprieve from that uh, during the pandemic. Right before the pandemic, we had in the U.S. the trial of Harvey Weinstein, which led to uh, his conviction. I think there was a, a kind of sigh of relief among a lot of people that that case was concluded successfully. Um, and then we, we go into the pandemic for a year and people are preoccupied with that. And now as we're emerging from the pandemic, um, it seems like maybe we are returning to some of those, those issues. Um, even though, you know, we don't have, uh, in the U.S., we had a man who was president for four years who had been alleged, you know, to have committed uh, sexual abuse in more than 20 cases. Uh, thankfully, he's not uh, a president anymore, but, but we continue to have questions about other political leaders and other cultural leaders and, and um, that uh, go, go on and on. And I think the question is, you know, how, what's the right response, both in terms of legal responses, but also in terms of more of non-legal uh, kind of um, social media and journalistic responses to these kinds of allegations. 
mean, as a criminologist, I'm always really interested in, in how the uh, criminal justice net constantly broadens and brings things in that, were, that weren't legislated before. And I was really, really interested in what you wrote about rape by deceit. Mm. I wonder if you could explain to the listeners about, you know, what that involves. Yeah, I mean, rape by deceit is, is one of those issues. It's really generated a huge academic uh, literature and, and is really quite baffling. So here's, here's the basic problem. So everyone, or most people, most liberals anyway, agree that um, uh, it should be a crime to engage in sex without consent. And um, so what does it mean to engage in sex without consent? Well, traditionally that meant forcing someone to have sex or coercing them into having sex, right? So unless you engage in this act with me, I'm going to fire you or I'm going to arrest you or deny you some privilege. So everyone sort of is on the same page on that. But then there are cases where um, somebody uh, is able to obtain sexual access by means of deceit. And normally we would say that when uh, that consent that's obtained pursuant to deceit, it's not valid consent, right? So if I try to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge and I, you know, I, I, I deceive you into buying it, uh, that's fraud and um, everyone agrees that that's, uh, that, that should be a crime, uh, that, I've, that I've obtained your consent to pay me a lot of money um, by means of, of misrepresentation. But then we take it to the sexual realm and we say, okay, well, and some scholars have argued this, for example, Jonathan Herring in, in, at Oxford has said, well, if you obtain consent to sex by means of deceit, then that, that, that consent is not valid and you should be liable for some form of sexual assault. Uh, or even call it rape. Okay, well, that sounds fine in theory, but when you really begin to look at it, you see some strange results. It means that uh, anytime you could prove that the consent was obtained, you know, without the misrepresentation, the consent would not have been obtained. In other words, the consent was a but-for cause of the consent. Then anytime you have that, then the consent is not valid and you have potentially have an offense. So what does that mean? Well, someone goes into a bar and misrepresents himself as being, I don't know, a premier league footballer or uh, being a uh, multimillionaire or being uh, not married or wanting to have a long-term romantic relationship or being a member of a particular religion or cultural group or what have you, any of those things might induce somebody to have sex. In other words, the victim might say, well, I wouldn't have had sex with you if, I, if you hadn't lied to me and told me that you were a Premier League footballer. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had sex with you. And so some commentators have said that that should be uh, regarded as a form of assault. And in fact, in Israel, where they have a pretty punitive sort of law of rape and sexual assault, there's a famous case involving a man who lied to a woman uh, and said that he was um, not married and that he was interested in a romantic relationship and, and also that he was Jewish. And she later testified that she would never have had sex with him, but for the fact that he made those misrepresentations to her, all of those things were false. 
And the Israeli courts actually upheld that conviction and said that that did constitute a, a form of sexual assault under the Israeli law. So that, that case has elicited a lot of commentary and criticism. Um, and so the problem I think is, you know, is there a choice? Is there some middle ground between the sort of extreme position that any kind of deception, but for deception should be grounds for uh, sexual assault uh, on the one hand and not treating any sex that's obtained by deception as a crime? Is there any sort of middle ground which can recognize that people do engage in misrepresentations all the time? I mean, almost everybody does something that might be regarded as deceptive in some sense. If you color your hair, if you put on makeup, if you, you know, fudge a little bit about your job or your responsibilities or your academic record or your athletic prowess or, you know, whether you've climbed Mount Everest or whatever it is, people make misrepresentations. Do we really want to treat any cases in which somebody obtains sex pursuant to those kinds of misrepresentations as potentially a crime? It really broadens the debate around informed consent as well, doesn't it? I mean, to sort of like present yourself as being single when you're actually married, that kind right. of interferes with someone's kind of reality, uh, sort of perception of the, the reality that they're engaged in. Right. I mean, so in, there is a real sense in which the consent is defective. Um, and then you get into even more problematic and controversial cases about people who misrepresent themselves or allow themselves to be misperceived as uh, using birth control or most controversially probably um, being cisgender. So um, somebody who is tra a transgender person doesn't reveal to a potential sexual partner that they're transgender. Now, if they say, if the person says, what was your, your gender assigned to you at birth? And the person lies and says it was male when it was really female, then that seems to be a misrepresentation. Whether it should be assault or not is a good question, but that does seem to be a misrepresentation. If the person, if the victim says, but I wouldn't have had sex with you if I had known that your, your cisgender, your, the gender that was assigned to you at birth was different than the one that you now represent yourself as, that you regard yourself as, that does seem like a misrepresentation. But then there are other cases where there's no actual misrepresentation, it's simply the person presents as the gender that they now regard themselves as. And then the other person finds that out and says, but you didn't tell me that you're, you were born a different gender or you had a different gender assigned to you at birth. Those I think are even more problematic because there's no actual misrepresentation being made there. There's a merely a mis misunderstanding. A lot of critics, a lot of scholars have said, you know, that's just, that's just taking it too far. Um, it's, it's an intrusion onto people's privacy. People shouldn't have to reveal their entire sexual history, what they're, what they're, gender was assigned to them at birth and so forth. And we, we, we shouldn't expect that um, they should be required to do, to, to do that. So there's a lot, a lot of uh, controversy about this. I think the courts are really struggling to try to figure out you know, what the right answer is. Um, so 
I offer an approach to thinking about it. I don't suggest that I've solved all the problems, but I, I, I discuss the problem in the book and, and try to offer a way to think through some of these issues. Can you describe a case or a legal rule in which the conflict between the right to be free from non-consensual sex and the right to engage in consensual sex is most acute? Um, well, um, a, a couple, I guess, come to mind. So um, think about how we deal with people, sexual partners who are disabled in one way or another. Um, so a, a famous case in, in the U.S. Uh, involved a, an elderly couple. Um, both of them, the man and the woman had been married before, both were widowed, they met each other, I think in their 60s, they fell in love, they got married, um, and everything was fine until, sadly, the woman um, began to suffer from dementia. And eventually she moved to a um, nursing facility uh, for people with dementia and her husband would go visit her every day. And apparently by, by the, according to the testimony in the case, they continued to have an affectionate relationship with each other, including some sexual contact. The, uh, the daughter of the woman um, from an earlier marriage was not happy about that at all. And she felt that her mother wasn't capable of, uh, you know, making uh, a consensual decision. And she reported the, the activity to the authorities. And the man was prosecuted um, under an Iowa law that made it a crime to have sex with a person who was mentally disabled. Uh, and the case went to trial. Uh, he was actually acquitted rather quickly by the jury, but it kind of raised a lot of issues about look, we really have a problem of sexual abuse um, of people who are in nursing facilities and so forth. We know that that's true. We know that people uh, in nursing homes and mental hospitals are subject dis disproportionately to sexual abuse. And that's a real concern. On the other hand, if we have a rule that says that, you know, people who are in a nursing home or in a uh, mental hospital or otherwise suffer from serious mental disabilities, if we have a rule that says effectively you can't have sex because anybody who has sex with you subjects themselves to possible sexual uh, prosecu prosecution for sexual assault. And by the way, you might even have two residents within the home or having sexual contact with each other. So there's a real conflict there. On the one hand, we want in terms of uh, positive autonomy what I called before positive autonomy, people who are disabled still should be able to have sex, right? Uh, in the main, even people who have dementia might still have sexual urges and might want to express them and we shouldn't completely um, prohibit them from doing so. On the other hand, we have a real problem of sexual abuse, uh, potential problem of sexual abuse in some of these cases. So how do we regulate that? And um, it's not easy. I, I have a discussion in the book about how to, how to do that, um, which is basically a fact-specific kind of determination of what was the person really, you know, how disabled were they? Um, in the case of dementia, for example, people often have different levels of competence at different times of the day. The typical pattern is that they have more um, the more lucid in the morning as the day goes on, they, they, they tend to have more disability. 
Um, so, you know, we need to sort of sort, sort through that. Um, so I, I think that's a, I think that's a good example of, um, how, you know, how those, those, uh, imperatives come into conflict with each other. Yeah. And it's, it's quite interesting because, um, you know, you do have some really interesting conversations within this book about presumption, the presumption of non-consent, the presumption of incapacity based on age. Right. Um, yeah, I wondered if you wanted to kind of like broaden on that a little bit, because I found it really interesting about the importance that age plays in, in capacity to give consent. And, you know, mm-hmm. I just wanted you to broaden on that, really. Yeah, I mean, so so that case I just described involves someone at the end of their life and as an elderly person. I don't think anybody suggests that elderly people as such should be, you know, uh, categorically regarded as I get older myself, I certainly wouldn't want to see uh, that that happen. It's only somebody who really manifests real uh, um, signs of uh, of dementia when we might want to say that someone is um, incapable of consent. But of course, on the on the other end of life, uh, we say that children are incapable of giving adequate consent. And I think there's no dispute about young children being incapable of giving consent to sexual contact. And, and you know, everybody agrees that uh, statutory rape should be a, a crime. Uh, and the fact that the child in some sense consented should not be a defense. Now things get more complicated when you're talking about older adolescents, um, people who are 15 or 16 years old. Sometimes they're having sex with other people who are that age. Sometimes they're having sex with much older adults. And I think, again, the law is sort of struggling. Do we want to say categorically that a 16-year-old, a mature 16-year-old, someone who, especially in an age when uh, a lot of older teenagers are having sex with each other, are exposed to sexual materials, are much more in a sense sexually mature perhaps than a generation or two ago. Um, you know, do we want to say, where do we, where do we draw the line between those cases uh, or, or those uh, juveniles who are capable of having sex and, and those who are not? And um, uh, we, there's a, a famous case that I cite in the book from Maryland uh, involving a defendant who himself was uh, mentally disabled. He was in his early 20s, but he had a mental age, according to the psychiatric testimony of, a, of, a, of, a, of an 11 year old. Uh, and he had a sexual encounter with a, what can only be called a precocious, I think she was 14, almost 15 years old. Um, and you know, he was prosecuted for his sexual contact with her when she got she got pregnant, and the parents went to the pro, went to the DA and said, you know, you need to prosecute this guy. So he was prosecuted, and basically, um, the defendant argued that well, she was the one who was more mature in some sense than he was, and yet he's the one who's being prosecuted. And the court said, sorry, but the law is what it you know it says what it says. He was 22, she was, forget, I think she was just shy of 15 years old. And the court said, you know, the law doesn't have any exceptions in it and we're gonna hold him, him liable. So, um, you know, but the problem is you have to draw the line somewhere. Mm. And 
um, where do you draw the line? If you look at the US versus uh, Europe, you'll see that the, the line is drawn in different places, even among various US states. Sometimes it's 15, sometimes it's 16, sometimes it's 17 and, and so forth. Um, so um, the different, so we have sort of two different paradigms. One is there are certain kinds of people, whether because of age or mental disability, who are categorically in, incapable of giving consent. And then another paradigm is there are people who have, are capable of giving consent, but they're in a hierarchical relationship. Say they're a prisoner in the prison or they're a patient of a doctor, even though they are theoretically capable of giving consent, they're in a, a relationship uh, such that any consent that they give is likely to be illusory. It's, it's likely to be ineffective. And those are sort of two paradigms that um, are developed yeah, I was, extensively in the book. I was kind of, I, I was really struck all the, all the times I was reading the book about the dangers around generalization. Yeah. You know, and I think the legislation around sex really suffers because of the consequences of this, this sort of generalization. And that I was really, you know, I was really struck when I read, I read the um, chapter about adult incest and over-criminalization there. That was mm. a really interesting example that I think maybe it would be nice for you to explain to the reader about, you know, the issues around adult incest. Yeah, I mean, so incest is in, it, it really an interesting case. Um, and, you know, incest, we can think about biblical prohibitions on incest, and incest has always been uh, literally a taboo, um, and partly because of the, uh, just the physiological uh, consequences of incest uh, can lead to, you know, serious birth defects. So that's kind of what most people associ associate with incest. Um, and we're here, and we're talking here about adult incest. So nobody approves of or says that we should decriminalize incest involving, you know, young people living in the home. That's that's a separate category. Where we're talking about in cases of incest where an adult brother and a sister, or an adult parent and a child are having sex with each other. So from a liberal perspective, you might say, well, look, it's weird. It's kind of disgusting. It's not something I would ever want to do, but. If people want to make that decision and they're adults and there's no coercion, then, you know, why should the government intrude into that? Um, okay, well, that's fine. But the problem is that once you begin to look at these cases, you discover that a lot of them actually do have a kind of uh, hierarchical element to them and, and have, a, have a more complicated sort of history. So a lot of times the adults who are having incestuous relationship, you discover that actually it began when one of them was a juvenile, or you discover that there is this kind of hierarchical relationship. A parent having sex with a child is almost inevitably, uh, there's a real, really high probability that there's gonna be some kind of coercive relationship there because that's just the nature of being a parent and being a child. So, um, you know, how do we, how do we regulate adult incest. In the U.S., we just kind of categorically prohibit all of it, um, but that, that may be over-inclusive. We may be covering some cases that we really shouldn't be covering. Um, so that's, um, that's kind of the, the riddle of, uh, of incest. But I think the key move is that we need to distinguish, um, at least at the outset, 
make a clear distinction between adult incest and juvenile incest, um, because I think a lot of the antipathy that people feel towards adult incest is a kind of residual uh, result of, oh, well, you must be thinking about cases where, you know, the stepfather comes into the house and is, is um, sexually abusing the 13-year-old, the uh, you know, stepdaughter. Yes, of course that should be a crime. But if they're adults, um, then I think things are a little more complicated. Yeah. So tell me, um, what is it that you're hoping that your book will change, that your book will achieve? Well, um, you know, I think that what the what this book offers is, uh, uh, you know, the subtitle is it's a unified liberal theory. So it's trying to get people to think about how all of these offenses relate to each other, that they are a kind of uh, uh, all of a, of a piece. So I, I would hope that, you know, anybody who's a reformer in this area who wants to rewrite the laws of sexual assault or incest or prostitution in a given jurisdiction would kind of look at this and say, okay, you know, what, what, what can we learn from this? Um, and um, as, I, as I began, uh, when I described the two conferences that I attended um, at the beginning of our hour, um, I think there's a tendency among scholars and also among reformers to kind of separate out all the non-consensual offenses and the putatively consensual offenses. And I think that's a mistake because I think they, they do interrelate and we need to sort of view them as, as a whole. Um, so I, I would hope that people would um, read the book and uh, see what kinds of connections I've tried to draw between the, the non-consensual and the consensual behavior and, and show that, um, you know, they're, they're really are, they really are interrelated. Um, that's, that, that's the hope, um, you know, whether <laughs> that, uh, whether law reformers really will deal with the sort of complexities that are here, I, that, that, that's another question. I, I don't know, I hope that, um, I, I hope that that's a possibility. I mean, the one thing that I took from your book is just how, how kind of like clear cut it was. There was no kind of uh, moral standpoint. There was no, this wasn't a book about morali morality. It was a, it was a, just a description of where the law stands. And I learned a lot from that because there was no moral judgments being made. I made, I learned stuff about necrophilia and things that I didn't know. <laughs> you know, I come from a law background and I'm a criminologist and I study sex. As sex work so for me it was really informative and I actually learned a lot from it I really did enjoy reading your book and yeah. um, I wondered like this and this will be my last question what did you learn in the writing of this book well as I said I, I, I did um, I suppose learn a lot about kind of sex and sexual behavior that I that I really didn't know I mean I've I've been married to the same woman for 32 years I'm pretty you know, straight-laced, button-down kind of guy. Um, and, the, you know, I learned a lot about the kind of variety, the vast variety of sexual behaviors that people engage in, which I, I found quite fascinating. I learned about sadomasochism and bestiality and necrophilia, as you mentioned, that were things I honestly had never really, you know, given much thought to before. I'll tell you one quick uh kind of funny anecdote, I, I, I wrote a, a good chunk of this book when I was visiting at the London School of Economics and the law faculty, 
uh, a few years back, and which was a great experience. And one day I was working in the in my office there doing some research, and I must have Googled, I don't know, I don't know what the term was, probably bestiality or necrophilia. And then all of a sudden I clicked the button and I got like this big warning light on my computer, and it said, you know, the London School of Economics, you know, doesn't allow you to uh, connect to this page. Well, as far as I knew, I was I didn't know. I thought I was getting a Wikipedia page. I had no idea what I would have connected to, but the London School of Economics computer system regarded this as an in, in, improper sort of search term and told me that I, I couldn't access it. I've never had that issue come up in the US, but um, it, it, it suggested that I kind of was really must have been pushing the limits of, uh, you know, of, of permissible research. And now my dog is barking at me. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, just for the, for the listeners, um, the, the book is called Criminalizing Sex, a Unified Liberal Theory. And it's published by? Oxford University Press. Thank you. And you are Stuart Green. And it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Stuart. So thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you for producing an awesome, awesome book that I recommend people read. I had the best fun reading it. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much.